Well, good morning. The Lord's given us another glorious day to come together in fellowship with one another, to gather and receive teaching from his precious word. If you have your copy of God's Word with you, please open with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16, and we'll pick it up where we left off last week in this important passage. Allow me to read our passage in its entirety. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need your spirit this morning to understand this text. Teach us this morning, teach us truth, Father. Rid us of any error that we might cling to in this text, Father, that we would see you for who you are, that would see your purposes for your church as you have declared them to be. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. And so we've, we've looked over the last couple of weeks at the confession of Peter. Who do people say the Son of Man is, but who do you say? that I am. And we saw that there was this contrast here between the people and God's people in answering this question. Many there are, uh, even in our day, who are open to the idea that Jesus is good, that he's beneficial, that he's a helpful teacher to learn from, and possibly even a prophet of the Lord himself, but go no further. Not so with God's people. Those whom the Father has given eyes to see, those whom the Father has given ears to hear, those whom the Father has revealed truth concerning the person of Jesus too. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that, by the way, though often referred to as Peter's confession, and, and rightly so, but it might be better labeled the fact of Christ's identity. Yes, Peter believes this fact, but it is not Peter's belief that makes this of such importance. It is rather the fact that Peter believes that is the truth we should highlight here. And so we have Peter's confession, Peter's a conformity to the fact of Jesus' identity. And then last week, we examined the rock, Jesus' statement. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What is the rock that the church is built on here? 
Is it Peter? Is it Peter's confession? The testimony of Scripture seems clearly to indicate that there can be no possible rock but the Lord Jesus himself. Consider Paul's words, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Peter? No. No. Jesus Christ. If Peter is the rock, or, or if Peter's confession is the rock, Paul seemed to have missed the memo. And of course, last week we also looked at the testimony of Peter himself. Peter offers us no indication whatsoever, no hint at all that he believes himself to be the rock upon which the church is built. Rome believes that he is, but Peter disagrees. Peter knows who the rock is. Jesus Christ himself is that precious God-chosen rock, that cornerstone upon which the church rests. He is both the key structural stone in the church, but also, he is that stumbling stone, that stone of offense to those who do not embrace the fact of his identity. And this again shows us that it is not the confession that makes the bedrock of the church, but rather the fact of Jesus' identity. And so as Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he is pointing back to the very truth that Peter has just stated about who Jesus is. That is the rock. On that, the church rests. But there's something special about Peter, for sure. And, frankly, by extension, something special about all the disciples, all of the apostles here, unless, of course, Judas. John MacArthur writes this, whether one interprets Matthew 16, 18 as referring to Peter as a small stone placed on the mountainous stone of his confession of Christ, or as referring to his being one with the rest of the twelve in his confession, the basic truth is the same. The foundation of the church is the revelation of God given through his apostles, and the Lord of the church is the cornerstone of that foundation. The living word to whom the written word bears witness. The Lord builds his church on the truth of himself. And because his people are inseparable from him, they are inseparable from his truth. As we stated last week, there is debate, there is controversy over this rock. The rock is the truth of Christ's identity and the revealing of that truth to his people by the sovereign will of God the Father. When Jesus says, on this rock, that's what he's referring to. The disciples 
are God's specially chosen men to first receive such revelation of the fact of Christ, and they are those who are entrusted with the role of telling the world of this truth of the fact of Christ. And we see this in today's passage as we press on here in this text. First of all, as we ended last week, I want to spend a little more time on the words, my church, here in, in the, the church that Jesus promises to build. Now, the, the metaphoric language that Jesus uses here um, in, in this text, the, the word church or, or the, the Greek word ekklesia, really doesn't fit into the figurative language that Jesus employs here. Rock, foundation, cornerstone is the idea that he's given here, and build. Of course, there's a, the, uh, the metaphor here is the building, the construction of a structure. And uh, unless we get the idea that the church fits in that language and, and come to the conclusion that Jesus is speaking here of building some physical structure, we, we need to clarify. Ecclesia, the assembly of the called out ones. Those that Ephesians 1 speaks of. Allow me to read this text and, and pay particular attention to the corporate language that's used here. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, Jesus' church, is promised to be built. And that church is a corporate gathering, an assembly. Uh, actually, on, on a global scale, the church is comprised of a multitude of corporately gathered local assemblies of his called out people, his chosen people. I think we here in North America, we live in such an individualistic world and culture that I think that this gives really rise to some misunderstanding, some confusion, particularly here in this past few years, over what is the church. Ecclesia is the assembly. That there is no church apart from gathering, assembling. Though we rightly understand that there are many individual assemblies around the world, and we are but one family, one assembly within 
the greater universal church of Jesus Christ. I am not the church. You are not the church individually, but collectively, we, the people of God, are the church. Corporately. The building, then, is the fact that these called out ones, these individual members of his elect, are to assemble, to be joined together with the body as a whole. The building that Jesus promises, then, is continued revelation of the fact of his identity to all of his elect throughout the ages until the whole of the structure, metaphorically, is completed, until all of the elect are assembled. The outcome is sure, because Jesus has promised his church will be fully built. Currently still under construction, yes, but being built and one day to be completed. It's a promise that we can bank on. What, an, uh, what a distinct privilege to be a part of. Now, Peter isn't asked here to build the church. The 12 are not given the commission to go and build the church. Missionaries and pastors today don't build the church. We, all of us, as Christians, are in fact but the tools in the hands of God, tools that he uses to build his church. I can rightly claim this to be my church, but only in the sense that I am a part of its members that I belong to it, not that it belongs to me. I belong to it. The Lord is the sole owner of his church and he'll not share ownership with any other. And that includes Peter, and that includes the 12, and that includes you and me. Jesus is the sole owner. It is his church. He alone uses the church for further glorification of his own name as he both testifies to the world of his amazing grace and the salvation of sinners through faith alone and testifies against the world of its nearing judgment lest she repent and turn to him. Matthew 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, I, I don't like the translation here. It, I think, lends itself to ideas this text is not meant to convey. Gates of hell being prevailed over as in a Christian army laid siege to hell itself and overcoming in a great victory. That's not what this passage is talking about. Or the idea of demonic powers, a demonic army 
charging against the church, attacking the church, powers of the underworld seeking to do harm to Christ's church, but the church will overcome. That's not what this passage teaches. Nothing like that is found in this text. Hell here should be translated as Hades. Now, I know there are a number of places in Scripture where we could use these terms interchangeably. This is not one of them. And that leads to some improper interpretations. Hades here represents the place of the dead, the place where the dead dwell. And notice, even in this, we see the idea that death is not simply non-existent, but rather removed from here and placed there to dwell there. That's the idea. Hades is a place contrasted with heaven. And so we get the idea that it is, it's not the place that one wants to find himself. It's not the place one wants to be dwelling in. Now, gates in the Bible are often representing a defensive mechanism to keep people out. The gates of the city, for example. Here, however, much like the gates of a prison, the gates of Hades are gates that keep people in. And so the idea of the gates of Hades not prevailing against the church is an odd idea, frankly, which of course gives rise to some of the incorrect interpretations. Those gates are not coming against the church. It's not an offensive charge, nor is the church charging those gates to take the city behind them in some war image of salvation moving forward. Not at all the idea of the text here. Rather, Hades' gates keep the dead dwelling within them securely in place. There's no escaping those gates. Those gates would have been regarded as particularly strong gates as is evidenced by the fact that once a man is dead, he doesn't return. He doesn't come back from that dwelling place. Now, we've seen a few instances of Jesus raising the dead. We have a few instances of this in the Old Testament scriptures of where the dead are raised. But in the history of the world represented in the Bible, from Adam to Jesus, there are but a handful of men who have ever returned from the dwelling place of the dead. Once those gates secure you in Hades, it seems that a man's fate is certain, or next to it, the gates of Hades, metaphorically, represent the power of death. Now, we know the power of death was overcome by our Lord Jesus Christ. It was not powerful enough to hold him. He rose victorious over death. Strong as those gates are, they didn't even compare to the power of our Christ. 
strong as those gates are, his church cannot be held by that power either. The Christian dead will also overcome the gates of Hades to live with our Savior, to enter the gates of paradise. We sing those words, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Well, that includes actually after the life on this earth is completed. Even in Hades, those gates cannot restrain us. Not even the power of death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I can just imagine the Apostle Paul contemplating these words when he writes Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As R.T. France writes, death will not be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. That's good news. Isn't it? That's good news. Now, of course, we all need to understand that Jesus spoke, as he spoke this, there was a gate that Jesus would face in building his church. I will build my church, and not even death can stop the building of my church, Jesus is declaring here. From the perspective of Jesus speaking these words at this very moment about his own death coming, this was also true. He would go to the cross. He would die. He would be buried. And he would arise and he would build his church. From our perspective, we look back and see that that has been and is being accomplished. I think this also supports the understanding that Christ himself is the only possible rock. The revelation of Christ by the Father to his people, the, the, the revelation that Jesus has overcome his substitutionary death in the place of sinners victorious over the very gates of Hades, by which you and I, believers in Christ, are justified. This is the rock that Jesus builds his church upon. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Oh boy, here we go. Controversy. We have all kinds of different interpretations of what this text means. And here, of course, much of the controversy, much of the disagreement is tied to an incorrect understanding of the rock in the previous verse. We've already sorted that out, but among those who view the rock as Peter upon whom the church is built, they, the Roman Catholic Church, and frankly the Eastern Orthodox Church follows this along, uh, although 
they have a little different understanding of papal succession, or at least they have a different understanding after 1084 AD when they split from the Roman Catholic Church on papal uh, uh, succession. But these would tie that misunderstanding together with a misunderstanding of the verse, of this verse, to, to some really bad conclusions, frankly, about entrance into heaven and the building of Jesus' church. You see, Peter has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he, he's been given the authority to open that door to whom he will, and he can choose to lock out whom he will. I mean, isn't Peter, and of course, his chosen successors through history, isn't he special? Look at the authority he's been given. J.C. Ryle writes this, but what are we to understand when we read the promise which our Lord makes to Peter? I will give unto thee the, king, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Do these words mean that the right of admitting souls to heaven was to be placed in Peter's hands? The idea is preposterous. Such an office is the special prerogative of none but Christ himself. Do the words mean that Peter was to have any primacy or superiority over the rest of the apostles? There is not the slightest proof that such a meaning was attached to the words in the New Testament times or that Peter had any rank or dignity above the rest of the twelve. Well, whatever you bind, Peter, whatever you loose is bound and loosed in heaven. You see, Peter has the authority to forgive sins and to grant life. Well, Peter himself seems never to have exercised that gift. None of the apostles ever practiced forgiving men's sins. The church in Rome would have you believe that the Pope, and then of course passed down from him to his cardinals, and from them to the bishops, and from them to the priests, that they have the power to forgive sins. You can go to them, you can confess your sins to them, and they will give you absolution and forgiveness, and then heaven can then be uh, secured through this means of the forgiveness by the church, because of course the church is built upon Peter and his authority. <clears throat> Wrong. That's not what this passage teaches. And it is not what the apostles understood and thereby put into practice. That is but an addition introduced much later by a wayward church departing from Christ. Forgiving sins is a power held by Christ himself and not shared with any of his ambassadors. We point people to him as the only one who forgives sins, and we tell people they need to take it up with him. I can tell a man where forgiveness may be found and upon what grounds he can find such forgiveness, but I can't forgive anyone their sins except those sins that are committed personally against me. And even then, 
I can only say that I will not hold those sins against them. I can't say God won't hold those sins against them. And so we see erroneous interpretations here. And we can understand this is not what this passage teaches regarding the authority as the key holders of the kingdom. So what does the passage teach then? Again, it's important that we ensure that we take the passage as a whole. Who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? You have a correct understanding because my Father has intentionally revealed this to you. This is the rock upon which the church is built. Not even death will be able to stop this church, Jesus' church, from being built. You hold the keys to the kingdom. What you bind is bound. What you loose is loosed in the kingdom. We see here, again, an interpretive and transition, uh, a translational problem that lends itself to Rome's error. It would have been easy in the Greek to say, will be bound in heaven, or will be loosed in heaven. But Jesus' words here include a very unusual word tense in this phrase. He uses in this statement both a future and a perfect tense expression. It is much better translated to say, will have been bound and loosed. Will have been future in the sense that until Peter sees the decrees of heaven, he won't understand this. But there will be understanding uh, there, he will understand. It was already bound or loosed, and Peter was simply responding to what was eternally decided in heaven. And so Peter is not the one in control of binding and loosing, but rather Peter is simply responding to heaven's binding and loosing. Peter is but a steward. He is not the owner. R.T. France again writes this, and I think this is really helpful. He says, the future perfect, uh, with the future perfect, the impression is that when Peter makes his decision, it will be found to have been already made in heaven, making him not the initiator of new directions for the church, but the faithful steward of God's prior decisions. Peter is not in control of the keys to the afterlife. Peter is not going to be found at the pearly gate to give you entrance. We see the same expression here. Whatever is loosed, whatever is bound, we see the same expression in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18. And there, that same, that same directive is given not just to Peter, and in fact, I would argue not just to the twelve, but given to all disciples of Jesus' church. If your brother sins against you, tell him in hope that he repents. If not, take witnesses and tell him again in hopes that he repents. If not, tell it to the church. Put him out in hopes that he repents. 
And Jesus goes on and he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you see exactly the same statement? You see, this binding, this loosing, is in the context of dealing with sin within the believing community. We also see that the binding and loosing is expressed in both passage, passages here in the neuter. It's not in the masculine. So this is not referring to binding and loosing people, but rather binding and loosing things or issues, sins. And so it appears here that there is a judging of sins in view in both texts. Together with the use of these future perfect tense verbs, it changes from Peter being the initiator, which heaven then follows, which of course makes no sense at all because Peter is but a man. Instead, what we see is the truth that divine guidance is in fact given to Peter to make the declarations of what has already been stated in heaven. He's given wisdom from on high to decide matters of sin in accordance with God's already determined purposes. The keys to the kingdom, the binding, the loosing is in relation to the governing of the church here in this world in accordance with how God governs his church in eternity. In Luke's gospel, we're instructed that the lawyers, the scribes, were excluding people from the kingdom of God. How? By their handling or mishandling of the scriptures. We see further, Matthew 23 and verse 13, the Pharisees, according to Jesus, are shutting up the kingdom to people, preventing them from entering. How? By tying heavy loads on people burdens, legalistic requirements for salvation. And I think this is very helpful for us in seeing how Peter carries the keys. We see Peter as a man used of God in the first preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 2, and thus opening the doors to the kingdom on the day of Pentecost to the Jews. We see in Acts chapter 10 at the house of Cornelius that Peter opens the, the gates to the kingdom to the Gentiles. We see also that Peter is called along with John in Acts chapter 8 to give credibility to the fact of the salvation of the Samaritans who Peter, uh, Philip preached the gospel to and, and even there to impart the Holy Spirit to them at the laying on of hands. But turn with me if you have your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. There's something fascinating here. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 14, we read this. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. In the bond of iniquity. You see, Peter is not causing the man, Simon, to be bound. He is simply declaring the truth that he is already bound. And he's bound by his own sin. Peter is not loosing the bondage of those who are saved in this passage. He's simply declaring that the bondage upon them is removed as God has given salvation to these. You see, the keys to the kingdom. We regard, with regards to sin here, as in the case of Simon here in Acts chapter 8, Peter is, is declaring what is forbidden. We see much of this in the testimony of the apostles in the scriptures, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no, filth, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For, as, for, for you may be sure of this, Paul says, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, uh, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And so the apostles, as a whole, had this role of setting before the church that which heaven declared the matters which no Christian was to have any part of, marking out sin and declaring it as, as what it is for God's people to see and understand. The keys to the kingdom is very closely related to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Whenever you hear the keys to the kingdom, think of James chapter 2. What, what, is, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. All right, show me your faith. I'll show you my works, right? This is absolutely not saying that God looks at our works to decide if we are saved. Nor does God look at our works to vindicate the fact that he saved us. Absolutely not. Rather, this is teaching how a man can know that another man has been saved. This is how a man or how the church can know that God has worked salvation in a man's life by seeing the fruit of what that man's faith has produced. It's not speaking so much of heaven, but rather of how we in the here and now can know if a man is in fact heaven bound. John MacArthur writes of this idea of the binding and loosing in relation to church discipline. He says this, in other words, a duly constituted body of believers has the right to tell an unrepentant brother that he is out of line with God's word and has no right to the fellowship of God's people. That's it. That's exactly what's happening here, the keys to the kingdom. Not the ability to actually open or close heaven to a man, but rather in the governance of the church in the here and now, in this world, to proclaim the decision of heaven concerning a man's life as we see it. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. God judges outside of the assembly of God's people. That's not our place. We don't do that. It seems the binding and loosing is in relation to judging those within the assembly of God's people. Those bearing the name of brother, though the professing believer. Peter had a very special role a very special way of opening the door to the kingdom to the Jews, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. 
The apostles at a, as a whole had a very special role in preaching Christ and in writing scripture and thereby inviting really all of the world to come to faith in Christ. Yet the use of the keys continues today and it isn't in the means of papal succession. That's not what I'm referring to. No, these keys were given to the church at large to set before the people of God that which is permissible and that which is not. I hope that's helpful. Verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Why would he do that? Why not tell everybody? Well, because there's still a cross to come. His time had not yet come. It was coming, and there was a time coming when those same would be commanded, in fact, to go and tell the world who Christ is. But that time hasn't arrived. When it does, Jesus will voluntarily go. He will voluntarily die, but it will only be according to the Father's timing. And that time had not yet arrived, and so he commands them to tell no one. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this text. We thank you really for the clarity of this text. I, I, I know there's, there's, there's controversies here that are drawn from it, um, that are frankly imposed upon it. The text itself is not that difficult to understand. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word Father, that, that, that we, if we allow Scripture to testify to Scripture, this is fairly clear, fairly plain, actually. Father, I, I thank you that you have promised to build your church. I thank you that we stand secure in your construction of your church, that it will, at one time, be totally complete, and that when it is, we, all who believe, all who are your people, will be included in that temple. And until then, you are continuing to do your work. You will continue to do your work, and we can rest secure in that. Father, I thank you that you have given us the wisdom from up on high to, to, to see uh, the, the fruit of a man's life, to, to, to see, and not perfectly, we can't see perfectly, we can't we can't judge the intentions of the heart perfectly. We, we can't see belief, but we can't see the fruit of belief. That we can have some understanding of who your church is, who it includes. That we can even take that and, and uh, evaluate our own life. Where do I stand? Is my life bearing fruit? Our, our assurance is not based upon that fruit. It's based upon Christ. We rest upon Christ, but our, the fruit of our faith certainly testifies. Father, I thank you for this passage. Um, Father, I pray that, that you would use it to cause us to glorify your name. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.